This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Working from home seems great. You can wake up later, keep your jammies on, maybe sneak in a little TV, but your boss is probably watching. More and more companies installing tracking software on their employees' computers, and you might not even know it's there. We'll go in-depth. The U.S. mad at Russia again, this time, over space junk that could have put astronauts at risk, and Pfizer going to ask for government approval of its new pill to treat COVID. If approved soon, a winter surge could be much more manageable. President Biden hitting the road to promote a big infrastructure bill. He just signed a victory lap for that one and a push to get the social spending bill passed. Uh, The president also wrapping up a meeting with China's leader. Will this warm relations between the two countries? And then Thanksgiving is coming up. But what if you're uneasy about being around unvaccinated family members? How do you handle things politely? You don't go. <laughs> stay home. You just Use stay it as home. a blanket excuse yeah, to not go, go anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Let's let's start with tracking workers at home. John Swift is regional director for Robert Half, specializing in technology. Also with us is Elizabeth Harz, who's CEO of Awareness Technologies. They sell employee tracking software. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Uh, so, John, let's let's uh, begin with you, John Swift. So, why do uh, certain employers seem to think they need tracking devices, for lack of a better term, on employees' home computers? Uh, great question, and thanks for having me on. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, I think you know there's still a lot of uh, novelty associated with uh, working from home or allowing you know employees to work from home in, in some cases, uh, you know, for, for long periods of time. And I think, you know, there's still a v- very much this sort of uh, approach and philosophy of managers thinking that, you know, their my, my employees might not be working when they say they are because we have no way of knowing what they're doing while they're at home. Yeah, didn't we get all these surveys, though, that show that productivity actually was way higher than we thought it was and and people are actually really doing a good job? Are they just suspicious that either maybe that's not what they think it is or it's not sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We actually uh, conducted a survey and more than two thirds of workers, approximately 72 percent, say that they need at least eight hours a day to get their job done, which you know, basically tells me that, uh, you know, people are doing their job and they're doing more than eight hours worth of work. So, Elizabeth, uh, your company, right, sells employee tracking software. So how does this actually work on the computer? And in most cases, do employees know that this software is on the computers? Thanks for having me. Um, so I agree with John, you know, about the novelty of work from home, I think still being a real issue when many companies went home in March of 2020, they thought it was for a short period of time. And now, of course, there's just loads of data pointing to this new work from anywhere world. And so this is here to stay by and large. You can certainly point to a couple of big brands that are having people come back into the office, but I think by and large, we all recognize globally that people will be working, I like to say, from anywhere because home is quite 
specific and you just see like a lot of mobility and people doing lots of different things now versus going into the same office every single day like they did prior to COVID. So we're in this new world and both employees and employers need new ways to manage and succeed in this work from anywhere world. So so what are those ways? I mean, someone puts your software on the computer. What what can they see through you and, and when? So our software is really focused on a very um, sort of graphical, quick, easy way for both employees, those who are uh, aware of the tracking and see the dashboards also, as well as employers to understand what's going on. So um, no, you know, really none of our clients are worried about somebody buying a holiday gift on Amazon, right? They just want a quick check-in to understand. And, and there's lots of different people who are involved. Sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's the HR, just really for attendance. Sometimes it's the manager trying to understand what's going on in a department. But we do, you know, very sort of visual, easy to digest dashboards that allow whoever is accessing, whether it's the employee, HR, or the CEO as a range of examples, to get the information that they need. And let me me interrupt, Elizabeth. Do employees employees always know that the software exists on their computer, or do they sometimes not know? Not always. And, um, uh, you know, I joined the space a year ago because we have such well-respected assets, and I think you know, having conversations like the one we're having now and helping to apply these existing assets in new ways for this new frontier that we're all in is really important. And we really believe that awareness, the name sort of (laughs) spells it out, but about being transparent about it. And, you know, this tool has a lot of benefits for employees. I mean, as John and you were touching on, a lot of employees were really overworking because they were initially worried about losing their jobs with COVID, I mean, before the great resignation. Um, And, you know, tools like this can help managers actually say, look, you're working 12 hours a day. This is too much. Um, And the other thing I would also note is there was a recent study um, by USC and UVA that talked about how humans actually appreciate being monitored by technology more than other humans because they think there is you know, less bias in it. Um, but but to your question, definitely some firms that do not share, firms that do share, but I think in this next decade, uh, you know, as, as the years unfold here, you'll see this as a much more transparent, open conversation, and it will, these tools will actually allow companies and employees to succeed in this new world. All right, Elizabeth Harz there, CEO of Awareness Technologies, and uh, John Swift with Robert Half. And, uh, yeah, to the other point, if you don't know and it's on there and you didn't read your employee handbook, I mean, how many times are they watching to see if your mouse is moving every 30 minutes or whatever? Yeah, and, and some employees working too much, something that we don't worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the boss. Yeah. when we come Eight to- hours, time to go home. Remember uh, the movie Gravity? It was the one with uh, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. Well, Space Junk smashes into a space shuttle as some astronauts try to return to Earth. Now, we're not going to spoil it, but it did cause, in the movie, major problems. Now, that plot 
nearly became reality. Russia sent a missile to blow up an old satellite. That created a cloud of debris and space junk that is now orbiting the Earth. Astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station had to sit in their transport vehicles just in case. And now the U.S. is mad at Russia. With us is Tarek Malik, editor-in-chief of Space.com. Thanks for being with us. So, as I understand it, and, and let me know if I understand this incorrectly, the Russians didn't bother to, to tell folks like us that they were doing this? That, that's right. Yeah, this really caught uh, NASA and their partners unaware uh, because uh, typically you don't want to create a cloud of debris just traveling at 17,000 miles an hour in space when you have seven people living on an international space station uh, that cost, you know, over $100 billion to build. And, and that seems to be what happened uh, when Russia did this anti-satellite test. They, they smacked a, a, an old satellite uh, called um, a, a Cosmos. I believe it's a, a, a pardon me, uh, it's, it's an old Cosmos satellite, an old Soviet-era satellite that has been deactivated for a long time. They blew it up with a missile and it created 15,000 uh, trackable pieces of debris and hundreds more uh, that, that we can't see that caused these astronauts to have to shelter in their uh, spacecraft on the off chance they'd have to, you know, have an emergency exit. How close was the chance? Obviously, you know, you don't want to take anything for granted. So you get in there in case you have to go. But I mean, Russia is going to say, oh, it was at a different level and it would have been fine. And, and we checked beforehand. But I mean, you mentioned the speed of some of these and there's 15,000 of them. Even if one the size of a cell phone gets through the wall, then it's game over. Exactly. You know, this actually isn't a, a strange occurrence on the space station. The space debris has become a growing uh, concern for astronauts in its 20 uh 20 year history, uh, just because there's more satellites, more debris up there. And usually uh, uh, radar and systems that, that are monitoring it by the US military detect possible dangers in time that uh, NASA and their partners, Russia is one of them, can move the space station. In fact, they did that last week when a, a piece of an anti-satellite test from China in 2007 got a bit too close to the space station. That's not what happened here because the debris was found with um, too, too little time to do anything about it, except close all the hatches, get in your spacecraft and hope nothing bad happens. After a few passes, they realized that the risk wasn't as high as they thought. The astronauts can work inside the spacecraft with some of the hatches closed, uh, inside, inside the station with some closed, but it's still a, a bit of a fraught situation because that debris will stay there for years, if not decades. Yeah, I, I was going to say it's going to stay in orbit. Right. And and there isn't like a sanitation truck that's going to go up there and pick it up on alternate Tuesdays. We need a space sweeper. <laughs> right. Yeah. So is there a plan uh, that anybody has to clean up space? You know, it's actually a new business that's coming up with the commercial companies that we see now. There is a company called Astroscale that uh, is one of several that are developing new vehicles, uh, kind of small spacecraft that can go up and either uh, uh, latch on to problematic debris and, and bring it down, drag it into the atmosphere where it can burn up uh, and kind of clear space up uh, or, or move big satellites uh, into a, a safer orbit where there isn't anything for them to hit. Uh, and th that is something that we've seen uh, in orbit tests already of uh, several different types of vehicles. One uh, British test used a harpoon to 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 try to to snag a piece of debris and and, and a net as well. Um, and there there's other uh, options like deploying drag sails to basically make a, a spacecraft slow down to the point that it just falls out of space and burns up harmlessly. 
Tarek Malik, editor-in-chief, space.com. I love that. Well, how are we going to get that out? We're going to harpoon it to drag <laughs> I, it back I'm, down. I'm trying to picture that. So they sent... Oh, oh, okay. Into the fire, the atmosphere. Come here. I, I like the idea of a truck just going up there and... Launch one of the, uh, the L.A. DOT uh, street sweeper things. Yeah, a lot of people would like to do that. Pfizer just submitted its COVID-19 antiviral drug treatment to the FDA for emergency approval. In the clinical trial, pill reduced hospitalizations and deaths by 89% when taken within three days of the onset of symptoms. And then the company's also just reached this agreement with a UN-backed nonprofit. Manufacturers will get the formula to be able to sell the pill in 95 developing countries. With us now is James Love. He's director of Knowledge Ecology International. It's a nonprofit which advises on licensing agreements for uh, pharmaceutical companies. James, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So uh, let's talk a little bit, because I'm interested in this notion that birth, both uh, Merck, which has a, a pill that is also supposed to be extremely helpful for people who get uh, COVID if given in very early stages of the disease, and Pfizer with its pill, have entered into these agreements to let other countries, right, manufacture their pill. But uh, is that for generic versions, or do both companies maintain the sole license for it? Both Merck and Pfizer have authorized generics to kind of manufacture the drug from anywhere in the world and sell it within this territory, which involves about a little more than half the world's population, where incomes are below $2,600 per year on average. And, and they will compete against each other. And the prices are expected to be really low, like somewhere between 10 and $30 per course of treatment. Okay, so at prices that all of these uh, countries would be able to, to absorb and because and, you can't sell it for too high or it's not gonna do its job. That's correct. Do oh. you see it as, as some kind of game-changing moment then when we take both of these things together? I know we use the term a lot, but is the pill finally the thing that can at least make these concerns of like the winter surge a little bit easier if it gets out there and if it gets out there fast enough? I, I think it's really important. Uh, particularly, I think the Pfizer product, because I think it has a better safety profile. Uh, at least I think there's uh, fewer concerns about the safety profile of protease inhibitors in this thing. The data is pretty good, cheap to manufacture. And any anyone that uh, manufactures uh, small molecules can do it. So um, I think it will make it's much easier to loosen up some of the restrictions right now we have on the economy. But I am curious about this, uh, James. While both Merck and Pfizer are licensing their new pills to other countries to do generic versions so they would be readily available at a price other countries can afford, there is this ongoing controversy, is there not, about the COVID vaccine that Pfizer makes and the COVID vaccine that uh, Moderna makes because they are not willing, are they, to license their vaccine technology to other countries? That's right. There's a completely different story between the, the drugs, the therapeutics, which you get treated if you get COVID, and the vaccines that would prevent you from getting it in the first place. Vaccine manufacturers are looking at the know-how to manufacture the vaccine as a really valuable corporate asset, and they're not willing to give it up at this point. The know-how for manufacturing the drugs, on the other hand, is, is not that big of a deal. Was the share the vaccine idea something that was broached early? I seem to remember at least some commentators saying, you know, if somebody hits on this, and this was way before we even had them, they should. They should get it out there, and everyone can make it at the same time, and we'll get out of this, you know, lickety split. Well, yeah, it, it's absolutely a massive policy failure globally 
that we're sitting on top of a, a pandemic where the virus zips around the world. And right now we're dealing with variants that really didn't originate in the United States. So people getting infected and, and there being mutations outside the United States is not, is not like an unimportant thing for us. And we've had a slow rollout of the manufacturing. We've had uh, hoarding of the, of the, of the manufacturing know-how and the patent rights, and it's uh, particularly the know-how. And you know, it's we're practically two years into the pandemic, and and we're nowhere close to having the vaccines uh, uh, in in a lot of countries in any sort of any sort of significant amount. So yeah, I think it's it's been a big policy failure. The fact that it, these licenses have taken place the last couple of weeks for Merck and Pfizer for the therapeutics is a positive thing, but it doesn't. It doesn't take back the fact that we're not doing the right thing on the vaccines. James Love, Director of Knowledge Ecology International. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Yesterday, the president signed that big $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill into law. Today, he's jetting across the country to promote the legislation, though he campaigned on the issue. Polls are showing Americans aren't giving the president credit for pushing it through Congress. Furthermore, his approval rating is at a dismal 41%, which is quite low when you consider that he hasn't even finished his first year. Uh, Harris Alec is Capitol Hill reporter at the Washington Times. Harris, thanks for being with us. So uh, the the bill, the infrastructure bill, of course, is now law. As we said, the president signed it in yesterday. So what's the purpose of going around the country now? It's a done deal. Well, obviously, the president needs a win. As you said, his approval rating stands um, in the very, very, very uh, low 40s. Um, he's had a very tough summer with... Uh, not only the losses in Virginia and the closer than expected race in New Jersey, but also the botched pullout from Afghanistan. Um, we're seeing troops uh, deploying on the border uh, of Ukraine. Uh, we're seeing energy prices soar. Gasoline prices are a dollar higher than they were this time last November. Um, heating costs are estimated to go up 50% in the next year, uh, specifically over this winter. And I can tell you right now, uh, being in Washington, D.C., it's already starting to get cold. So I can only uh, imagine how difficult it's going to be in a lot of other places across the country. But the president needs a win. And he finally has one. This is the biggest uh, infrastructure package that has ever passed. It is uh, greatly bipartisan. It passed both the House and the Senate in a bipartisan nature. And it's something that maybe a decade or two ago would have been really popular. President Trump famously attempted to do uh, infrastructure week multiple times, and he was never able to get there. And this is something that the president, um, that President Biden is hoping to convey to voters that he was able to accomplish. The problem is, again, it comes after such a difficult few months for him in office. It comes at a time when voters aren't necessarily paying attention to the roads and bridges. Um, and it also begs to differ the question whether or not these projects are going to be able to break around before the coming midterms where Democrats are, uh, by even the best estimates, considered uh, severe underdogs. I mean, Jackie Spears obviously re retiring. You've had retirements from senior House Democrats all across the spectrum. The House Budget Committee chairman, who's uh, in his first term chairing a committee right now, just announced that he's re retiring a few weeks ago. Um, so this does not bode well for the president at all. And that's why he's out there right now. He's campaigning in New Hampshire. He's going to be in Detroit over the week, um, over this coming week. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of more campaign trips. But, you know, you're not seeing a, a polling bump, as you would expect from a major legislative achievement. And that's because there's just so much else that's going on. Had this... Uh, bill come through maybe in March or April uh, or even June, I think it would have been very, very different. I think it would have defined, um, you know, the the first few months of his presidency coming now. And, you know, unfortunately, it comes at a time when most people just aren't paying attention.
Yeah. So all the headwinds you mentioned, I mean, is inflation the biggest one? It's it's kneecapped presidents before. And obviously, if voters aren't paying that much attention to everything that's going on, this is the one thing they do notice is happening because it costs everything or costs more for, for everything. Absolutely. I mean, gas prices are up. Um, you're having prices uh, increase. I was in the grocery store the other day. The price of a turkey was about forty dollars, which, you know, this time last year might have been thirty dollars or so. But but that's enough, especially for a lot of families who are um, coming off COVID and who are, you know, just maybe now getting back to work or or getting back to full time. And it's very, very difficult. Inflation is going to be the defining issue of the 2022 campaign. I think the the president has kind of not done himself any favors here by downplaying the threat of inflation earlier this year, saying that it was going to be transitionary, that it was only going to be short term. And now even his um, his, his secretary of treasury, uh, his secretary of the treasury has come out and said, well, this could be with us well into next year. You're seeing a supply chain crunch, uh, which I know a lot of people are seeing out there in uh, Southern California with all those boats lined up along its uh, beautiful California coast. But um, more and more people are going to the grocery stores and are seeing prices skyrocketing, but they're also seeing that some groceries just aren't there. And this causes a really, really big issue. And I think, you know, it's um, uh, it's right. funny because President Biden campaign does, you know, the, the guy who's going to put kitchen table issues back at the forefront of government. He campaigned to someone who's going to be able to do all this stuff. But ironically, with inflation, with rising gas prices and stuff like that, you know, he's kind of right now in this position where there's the perfect right. storm and all these kitchen table issues but, are coming to the Harris, forefront. You can't but, do much about them. But let me ask you this, because you mentioned he needs a win, and that's one of the reasons he's traveling around the country for the infrastructure bill that is now law. But there's also, as you know, this other very expensive piece of legislation involving all kinds of things from uh, uh, increased benefits for Medicare to, uh, I mean, you name it, the sort of social safety net uh, type issues. Is part of his trip designed to also rally support for that? Because that has not passed. To a degree, I mean, he's going to states like uh, Michigan and, and, New, and New Hampshire and Pennsylvania states where a lot of the lawmakers there have already kind of signed on to this bill. So uh, it's definitely meant to uh, bolster this bill in terms of, um, you know, building popular support from it. Uh, but if, if he if he was out there pressuring lawmakers, you know, he'd be going selling this bill in, in West Virginia, in Arizona, in uh, parts of New Jersey. Uh, but I will say this is all kind of part and parcel of a, of a bigger strategy to help, you know, build momentum for this bill and show that the administration is doing something. Uh, because unfortunately, they had uh, a few months there where, you know, it seemed like they were kind of just getting swept up in these crises and, and nothing really was moving forward. Um, this big budget bill, as you said, it's, uh, it's, it's estimated to cost uh, multi-trillion dollars. Um, it's going to have everything included from, uh, you know, tax credits for green energy cars to uh, potentially prescription drug coverage to the expansion of the uh, state and local tax deduction. And this is a big bill. This is probably going to be one of the biggest expansions of the federal safety net, uh, potentially since the Great Society, if they can get it across, though. And right now, there's a lot of questions as to whether or not that's going to be possible, because uh, there's a lot of Democratic infighting in, in Congress. And this is something that was always going to happen, simply because, you know, uh, Democrats have a three-seat majority in the House. They have an evenly split Senate. It's very, very difficult to get things passed, even when you have a 10-seat majority in in, in both chambers. Um, and that's something that the president is really having to contend with right now. And look, uh, the longer that this debate goes on, the more and more stuff that gets piled up in front of it on the congressional calendar. Uh, on December 3rd, it looks like they might have to pass a short-term resolution to keep the government funding. There's the appropriation deadlines coming. There's all the stuff coming. Uh, and, and that just doesn't bode well for this, um, for this big bill. Harris Alec, Capitol Hill reporter, The Washington Times. Harris, thanks. 
All right. U.S.-China, the Zoom conference. Uh, we have Aaron David Miller with us, senior fellow of geoeconomic strategy at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, also CNN Global Affairs analyst. Uh, thanks for being with us. So Charles and I were just saying, uh, you know, usually after these things, everybody comes out with a joint statement. Here's what we agreed upon, or we look for some sort of breakthrough. Uh, it doesn't seem like we got any breakthroughs with this one, but were we really expecting any to begin with? I think no, and I think that's precisely the right frame to look at this meeting. Look, you know, this is the most important relationship on the planet right now, the one between an American president and a president of China. Uh, and, uh, you know, barely a year ago, the U.S.-Chinese relationship, literally, you could define it as confrontation through accusation in the media. I think the significance of this meeting, I'm the last to believe that a single meeting, a single summit, a single encounter is going to fundamentally alter the contour of U.S.-China relations. It cannot do that. I would go as far as to say that the best we may be able to do going forward is what a colleague of mine at Carnegie calls managed enmity. This is not about fundamentally resolving the conflict of the two most powerful nations on Earth. It's a question of managing it. And this meeting, I think, even though it was Zoom, and Zoom is the new reality, at least for now, um, I think uh, at least began to change the notion that the relationship with China between the two top principles got to be one of accusations and confrontations and public embarrassment to something that I would, well, uh, I, the, the National Security Advisor of the United States, when he briefed on this, talked about the importance of healthy and effective competition. That's where we are with the Chinese. Okay, but... We're not in the problem solving. We're into healthy and effective competition. And frankly, if you could get that for now, you'd be way ahead. <laughs> At least it's something. But if, if there's a, a flashpoint that might happen in the not-too-distant future between this country, the U.S., and China, it's probably going to be Taiwan, right? Because I'm looking at the statement that the Chinese put out where they said that the American support for Taiwan was, and I'm quoting now, playing with fire. That sounds just a level below potential confrontation. It does, and it's extremely important that you pointed that out. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, those who play with fire get burned. And if you look at the contrasting statements between Biden talked about reestablishing the China policy and sticking up to American values. Chinese talked about warning the Americans. And I think that's a symptom, frankly, of China's frustration. They see the U.S.-Taiwan relationship reaching a new level. They see we're exercising. We've got U.S. trainers now in, in Taiwan, not permanently based, but helping the Chinese. Uh, everywhere the president goes and the National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, they're internationalizing the Taiwan issue, whether it's Japan, South Korea, uh, the Quad, uh, with the EU, they're talking about Taiwan. And even the Europeans, even though they really uh, have, have a less ag aggressive policy toward China than we do, um, in large part because of our, our politics don't allow a less aggressive policy toward China, even the Europeans are talking about bucking up the Taiwanese. So I, I think you're right. Taiwan is, at one, on one hand, the most likely confrontation point, but on the other, because the consequences of what a confrontation of Taiwan over Taiwan would mean for the U.S., China, for Asia, for the world, it, it probably is the least likeliest confrontation point. Uh, I would use this word for the foreseeable future, but make no mistake, President Xi of China, for his 
personal reasons, for his political reasons, for the destiny that he sees himself as beyond Mao Zedong, probably wants in his politi- political lifetime, political lifetime, to somehow um, make make Taiwan part of China again. And that, when that occurs, how it occurs, I we don't know. But it's a, it's a legitimate question, and Americans, political elites, the public, myself, I got to ask myself the question. I've been mean, working for a half a dozen administrations, Republicans and Democrats. If the Chinese made a serious bid against Taiwan, would I, we, whoever is president, be comfortable in in going to war with China over Taiwan? That's the seminal question. And frankly, guys, I don't have a good answer for that right now. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow of Geoeconomics and Strategy at the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, also CNN Global Affairs Analyst. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You checking the cards at the door? Is there a vaccination requirement to go to your Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner? Lots of people out there who are vaccinated wrestling with the decision to celebrate with friends and family who are not. Uh, what do you do if you're invited, but you don't want to go? I only go if the turkey's wearing a mask. What if you're hosting, but find out Uncle Joe, if you have an Uncle Joe, never got the shot? Do you just uninvite him? And what if you want people to wear masks? What if a host wants you to wear a mask? Gets really complicated. With us to explain how to navigate these tricky social situations is Diane Gotsman, etiquette expert who runs the Protocol School of Texas. Diane, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And these are all tricky situations that we're experiencing this year. So what is a person to do? I mean, let's start with, I guess, you get an invite to go to your family or friends Thanksgiving dinner uh, and you're vaccinated, let's say. Do you start making subtle or not too subtle inquiries about the other guests? You know, uh, yes, you make inquiries, but not so subtle. Just be upfront. I think what's really important is to communicate in advance. You know, you do it politely. You do it with a great tone of voice, but just ask, you know, just say, you know, I, it sounds like a lot of fun. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm cautious, uh, still socializing. Will everybody be vaccinated? Are you requiring people to be vaccinated? I think that's a fair for right now. I feel like that's a fair question. And since so many different people have so many different comfort levels, it's better to ask in advance than get there and be surprised or uncomfortable. Right. We all know Thanksgiving dinners or hear about Thanksgiving dinners where, you know, politics gets talked about and it turns into this whole mess. So as awkward as asking the question now is it avoids that later on and then you, you, you get through this as easy as possible? Absolutely. And that goes for the host as well. So as a guest, if you are wondering, by all means, ask. As a host, what happens is um, they they either have their own comfort level. So let's say they only want people who have been vaccinated. You know, they have their own boundaries because for, for whatever reason, you know, it, there's no judgment. I think it's important to make that call in advance and say, listen, um, I'm, I'm having an event. I'm having a little holiday celebration, but I am still... Um, we're very cautious as family, and we are having only people who have been vaccinated. Have you have you gotten your vaccination? And if you heard the tone of my voice, it's not judgmental. It's just really inquiring and concerned. And if they say, no, I'm not getting vaccinated or no, not as of yet, 
the host can say, you know, um, for now, I think we're just going to stick with this, you know, stick with um, our requirements to have everyone vaccinated for the safety of, of our own family and other guests who will also be attending. And, and I feel like on both sides, we have to be tolerant and-, um, and Okay, but, but Diane, what do, you, what do you do with a situation where, you know, you know, say that even before you ask, you just know you have a relative who, uh, for whatever reason, they don't want to get vaccinated. They don't they don't believe in vac- whatever. But you also know that maybe they're particularly sensitive. So uh, do you call them when you're inviting everybody else in the family and say, listen, uh, you probably have heard I'm having this big Thanksgiving thing, uh, but you're not coming. Well, you were doing really well until that last week. <laughs> you were almost there. I was almost there. Okay. <laughs> so all of that you would say, you know, I'm having an, I'm having a little celebration. I know you're not vaccinated. You know, everybody else in this family is really staunch about it, including myself. You know, Uncle John, I'm just going to ask you kindly to please just give me grace on this one. I'm going to have you over. I we will we will do what makes you comfortable. We'll sit outside. We'll uh, you know. I think that it, you know it's interesting because we all have to navigate our own family and friends with our own conversations, and and we have to use good sense and good judgment. And, you know, some people will say, invite people over who have not been vaccinated, but let's, let's make some rules. So in other words, you know, let's, let's socialize outside. Now, if it's snowing, there's a problem, right? But, you know, if you have the budget, you can get heaters, fire pits, if you have a, you know, a covered patio. So this, this particular season, you know, for this particular topic, and who knows how long in the future, we're really going to have to think carefully about how we navigate our holidays based on our comfort level, the comfort level of our guests, and then the relationship that we want post post COVID where everything is back to, you know, what will be our, our normal and not worrying about the vaccinations, because what we have to think about now is how is it going to affect our relationship in two months after we've, you know, I hate to say uninvited the guest, hopefully we take <laughs> we don't have to invite and uninvite, but if you do have to uninvite someone, let's say you see them out on social media and they are, they're at the concert, they're getting flown over all of these heads, they're just having the best time of their life and you're inviting only six people, you know, because you're being very careful. You can call and say, listen, Sarah or Johnny or whomever, you know, I, I noticed you're on social media. You're really not kind of abiding by what, what we are looking for, for this, this holiday event. You're probably not being as cautious as we'd like. And I just feel like it's going to be best if we take a pause for now. Those are all hard. That's hard to say. Yeah. We have to say it because if we don't say it now, we're going to be sorry later. All right. Yeah. We'll see you uh, next year. Diane Gossman, yeah. etiquette <laughs> experts, uh, runs the protocol school of Texas. Uh, it's starting already. If you haven't noticed, it really is beginning to look and sound a lot like Christmas. Holiday music playing already, and that makes a lot of people feel good. There's just, you know, something about the music. It's full of cheer. Yeah. Uh, is it, though? At the same time, hmm. a Consumer Reports survey finds um, holiday problems on holiday problems have found nearly a quarter of people dread seasonal music. So what's going on to trigger these very different responses? Nate Sloan, assistant professor of musicology at USC's Thornton School of Music, and Linda Blair is a clinical psychologist in Bath, England. Uh, Nate, let's start with you. Uh, what do you think it is about some of this uh, music that could make people have such different reactions? Well, I think it stands apart from the rest of popular music. 
uh, in usual times, popular music, you're expecting to hear something new, always on the top of the charts. That, that's what we crave. That's what defines pop music. But when it comes to the Christmas season, it's not the case. You get songs from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. It's, it's nostalgic. It's a different time and place. And I think for some people, that makes them feel, oh, this connects me to the warmth and the comfort of the holidays. For other people, it makes them feel, what happened to my pop music? Why, 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 why am I required to listen to Bing Crosby all of a sudden? Um, <laughs> Bing Crosby, so, wow, yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, that's part of the reason that you get such contrasting responses from people. Linda uh, Blair over in, in Bath, England, uh, is, it, is it just that or is it also that some people, it, it just makes them feel, I don't know, uh, like maybe they have to do a lot of stuff like, like shopping to get gifts or maybe, maybe they don't have family or friends that they can share the holidays with and it makes them depressed. Well, that's right. It, it depends on uh, the individual's history. Um, but this year, I think, uh, certainly over here in England, there's a lot more anxiety because I don't know if you remember, but um, our Christmas was canceled last year about three minutes, three days before Christmas. So everybody is here, hears the music and thinks, oh, God, is it going to happen this year? So there is can be a general response, but there's also a specific response, just as you said. If Christmas is a time to be lonely, then you don't want to hear the music. If Christmas is a time to go into debt, you don't want to hear the music. So it depends on your history. Yeah, is it hard for people to grapple with the the, the back and forth? Because like you want to you want to pull it off. It's got to be great. There's all this expectation, but also it's supposed to be fun. And why doesn't it feel fun to me? Yeah, and I just uh, was doing some other research and found that the average spend over here in the UK for Christmas is about a thousand pounds per person of the adults. I mean, that's huge. Hmm. So it, it is a big stress to a lot of people. But as you say, on the other hand, it may be the first time you've all gotten together in maybe two years. Who knows? You know, in a really long time. So you really want to do a nice job. Nate, uh, I'm curious from a music point of view, what is it about holiday music? And, and, and let's just take the lyrics off of it, even if, you, if they don't have any lyrics. Uh, there's something about holiday music that sounds like holiday music. Is that just because we've become over years conditioned to it? Or is there something musically that, that makes something, quote, holiday music, end quote? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few sonic markers that tell you that you're entering the holiday season. I think the most prevalent one is sleigh bells. Uh, I mean, you don't usually hear sleigh bells in the middle of May, but when it comes, uh, when November comes around, all of a sudden uh, the radio dial is just covered in sleigh bells. So uh, that's kind of one of the signs that, you know, you're entering the Christmas season. And then, as I was saying earlier, a lot of these songs uh, that become popular during Christmas are written in an earlier era of American music. And as a result, they follow different sets of rules than the ones that we're familiar with today. Like the structure of the songs is different. Where you expect to hear a verse and a chorus is different. The instrumental palette of the songs is different. So I think that's part of uh, what's so appealing about it for some people is that it really feels like you're stepping into this different world, musically speaking. Uh, and again, whether you love that or hate that, I, I, I can't answer, but it <laughs> definitely stands apart from the landscape of popular music. I'd it, say. And is some of that at play with, with the Mariah Carey song, and we all know which one it is, right? What makes mm -hmm. that so fantastically popular every year, and then people don't ever get tired of it? 
the song that shall not be named. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think part of it um, is uh, has to do with a Mariah Carey's vocal performance. I mean, she is one of the most virtuosic singers of the past. I don't know, thirty years. She has an incredible technique. Uh, I think uh, part of it is the way the song kind of builds up. She says, "This I don't want this for Christmas. I don't want that for Christmas." As a listener, you kind of there's some suspense. What does she want for Christmas? And then finally, you get the payoff. It's turns you. out what she wants for Christmas <laughs> is you. And uh, you know, finally, like I was saying earlier, the song is kind of a throwback. It uses a song structure that's not one that you encounter very frequently in the 21st century. So I think it has this nostalgic connection to Christmas music of decades past. And I think for all those reasons, uh, it's just become uh, one of the, the most lasting hits of, uh, right. of, of, our, of our generation. Linda, do you think that, that maybe some of the rejection to that music for people who, who really kind of despise it at some point, might it be because we feel almost being held captive by it that when you get to the holiday time and which seems to be starting earlier and earlier every year and i'm sure it's the same in in the uk as it is here is it that you know we hear it not just on a radio or television but we hear it in elevators we hear it at a physician's office we hear it in the supermarket i mean you can't get away from it well that's right um i mean i'm going to say something about what was it nate who just said yes. um it, it, the um, most irritating thing is if some sh- beware shop owners, if uh, you put a version on that's not quite what people are used to, and in fact that can become so uh, such an art that you'll have different versions in different parts of the store depending on what age group shops there, huh. because it's really irritating because our emotional reaction floods our reason when we hear music, so that's. You know, that's something that I think is really important. But the other thing is repetition. Uh, There's a a researcher here called Victoria Williamson, and she's found that um, the number of times you hear a piece of music has a bell-shaped curve in terms of whether you like it. You know, at the beginning, you sort of go, ooh, that's different. And then you love it because you know it, but then you get sick of it. So <laughs> shop owners, beware. Don't do it too early. That's that's like that that Adele song, Hello. Hello, is that it? Yeah, yeah hello. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and first I liked it, but now then I heard it so it? much, it's like, I, it's like goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time for us to say goodbye, oh, actually. Okay. On that note, uh, Linda Blair, clinical psychologist in Bath, England, Nate Sloan, uh, musicology, USC's Thornton School of Music. Thanks to you both. In-depth, back tomorrow.